let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your love, for your guidance, for touching our hearts, for making us into your image or making us in your image and for giving us the honor of partnering with you to bring your kingdom to bear in this world and to take territory from the kingdom of darkness. So I pray now that the words that we hear today would be your words. Anything that is not of you, Father, let it fall flat. That which is of you, Father, let it take root. Let it grow in us and let us grow with Father more into the image of your son. So we lift this time to you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Do I need to stay still, George? Because I hear it ringing up here. Oh, okay. Okay. Anyway, um, today's message might be a little interesting. I think it's going to be a 30-minute setup for a five-minute message but that's okay. Bear with me. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for coming because after all, we are the church, right? And the word that Jesus used for church, he only used twice, and the word is ecclesia. Does everyone know what that means? Okay, I'm getting a lot of shaking heads. So who wants to tell me what ecclesia means? <laughs> John. Yes, the called out. There are a lot there are a number of definitions for it, but that is the common root. Um literally it is a calling out. As called out by a town crier for a specific purpose. The old Greek meaning was the citizenry called out to the place of public meeting for the reason or the purpose of deliberation. As it applied to the Christian society back then, it was the called out of the assembly of the redeemed of Jesus. And the citizenry was either on earth, alive on earth, or dead and already in heaven. It applied to both groups. Now a couple notes on this. Is the called out a New Testament concept? This word ecclesia was used in the Greek. It was not used in the Old Testament because it was Hebrew. But is there a Hebrew word that was used in the Old Testament that meant the same thing? And the answer is yes. It was what the word was used to refer to the slaves, the Hebrew slaves in Egypt being called out by God. That was the called out. It was also used... Um, in Isaiah, and it was used in Nehemiah. So this concept of being called out of God is not a New Testament concept. It was, however, the first time the word ecclesia was used because different language. I'm sorry, Richard? Yeah. Now, the word ecclesia focuses only on the people. It's not used to talk about a structure or a building or a location. And it is specifically to the redeemed of God. It is not used for the unredeemed in their presence. 
the unredeemed are welcome in their presence, but the term does not apply to the ones who are not born again. Everyone clear on that? Okay, so we are the ecclesia. If we are the ecclesia, we're here for the purpose of deliberation. What do we deliberate on? God. Remember, this is church, so anytime you're asked a question and you don't know the answer, Jesus always works. Okay? <laughs> it's a very safe bet. <laughs> so, whose job is it to build the church? Jesus. <laughs> Anyone want a second that? And that happens to be exactly right. Anyone think it's our job to build the church? Okay. <laughs> for here, I'm going to, and, and forgive me, I'm going to refer back to the Bible quite a bit here. Um, but in Matthew 16, when Peter is confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed it unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say also unto you that on this Peter, that thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Notice that. On this rock I will build my church. That's Jesus speaking. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom. And whatever thou bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. We've all heard that before, right? Okay. A couple interesting things. Jesus calls Simon Peter at this point. And the word in Greek is Petros. Anyone know what Petros means? Rock. rock. Is it a piece of rock, a large rock? Pardon? Okay, you say small rocks, but here anything different. Okay, specifically Petros is solid rock, not broken off from the main foundation. So it's not a boulder, it's not stones. Sorry. It is the actual physical rock, the structure of the Earth's crust, the solid rock. So that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, have we heard this when he talks about building a house on sand or building a house on solid rock? Same word, by the way, Petros. So um, from this, I get, and I hope we see, that it's not our job to build the church. That's God's job. So if it's not our job to build the church, if that's God's job, what's our job? Bingo. The Great Commission. Everyone familiar with the Great Commission? Matthew 28. And Jesus came to them and said, All power in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, 
teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, there's some interesting things in here. The word lo, any clue what that means? Okay, therefore. How about if I said it meant behold? It's a word that has a lot of emphasis, a lot of emotion, and a lot of push or drive behind it. Ever had a conversation, and I'm going to go out and limb here, parents, ever had a conversation with a child, an adolescent, maybe a teenager, where you were trying to get them to see a point you wanted to make? <laughs> the word low would fit there when you're trying to tell them, See this point, take this in, make this part of your world. That's the emphasis on love. Make sense? So if we are commanded in the Great Commission to make disciples, anyone think it might be a good idea to know what that is? So what's a disciple? Follower, good. Is it more than a follower? A learner, discipline. Do we have any other traits of a disciple? Pardon? Teacher? Leader? Do you like the one you follow? Okay. Pardon? Obedient? Yeah. How about, and those are all good points, they're all true. One who embraces and assists in spreading the teachings of another. Does that fit? How about an active adherent as of a movement or philosophy? Seem to fit? Okay. A follower of the doctrines of a teacher or a school of thought. Does that fit? Okay. So, if we know what a follower or a disciple is, and by the way, in the, in the Great Commission, where the, it's translated sometimes, go therefore and teach, and some translations are go therefore and make disciples, the same root word for teach and disciple. They're used fairly interchangeably, but teach is typically a one-way deal. I teach you something. Is disciple or discipleship a one-way street? If I am discipling someone, is it a matter of I show and they copy and learn? Is it I show and they mimic? I like what you said, I believe, about becoming a follower or becoming like the other trying to become an image of the, the one you were following is to be a disciple. That makes sense? Okay. So, how do we make disciples? Any clue? I mean, set an example. Okay. Anything else? Come on, we're the ecclesia. We're deliberating here. Plant seeds. Anything else? 
reach out. Bring Jesus to them. Meet, meet them where they're at. Anything else? Yeah, educate. They may not know. How many of us in good conscience and good intention have done something that wound up not having the effect we wanted it to have because we acted out of ignorance? Every one of us, right? Would it be nice to have someone show up and teach us the truth and know how to act out of the truth? Yeah, okay. So, what did Jesus do when it came to the process of making disciples? The first thing is, he called them, right? Did they pick Jesus or did Jesus pick them? He picked them. When we disciple people, should we follow Jesus' model? Okay, so we pick them. How did Jesus pick the 12? <laughs> How did he know? Well, okay. <laughs> You're taking the wind out of my sales maggie. It's true. Yeah. If you look at <coughs> Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and I'm sorry I didn't put a lot of these up here because I wanted to run what the, what the marks of a Christian are. So you could be looking at this as it goes through. This is what Paul says the, we should be identified by. But Luke 6, starting at verse 12. In those days he went out to the mountain and prayed. All night he continued in prayer to God. And when the day came, he called his disciples. So what did Jesus do to call his disciples? He prayed. Now, were all the followers of Jesus people he had picked? And the answer is no. There were a large number of people who, when they saw what he did, came to follow him. But he prayed all night, and out of the ones that he knew, out of the ones who followed him, he selected the twelve after asking God who it should be. Now, why would that matter? Can we tell from a person's actions what the state of their heart is? We can. Can we, Maggie? Doesn't God say only he can judge the human heart? Yeah. We can look at actions and see symptoms. We can't judge the heart. Only God can judge the heart. And that's right out of the Bible. That being said, if we spend the time, if we don't spend the time in prayer, we apt to select someone whose heart is not right already. Who's going to get frustrated? Both of us, right? So if we pray, will God give us who to select? The answer is yes. Once he selected the 12, or once he had called his first disciples, what did he do? And if you look at all the Gospels, he calls the disciples, and immediately following, he starts demonstrating the power of the kingdom of heaven. He heals lepers, he heals the sick, he casts out demons. In their presence, 
is this Jesus demonstrating what the kingdom is about? Okay. When something is demonstrated, does it change the way you see things or the way you believe things? So you've probably got a pretty good plan, huh? Okay. Now, once we pray and select disciples, what do we do with them? And here's a question, and I can't find this verse in the Bible, but I'm going to put something out there that's going to seem harsh. How many people have been taught to evangelize by leading someone through the sinner's prayer and leaving them alone? How many have heard that? Yeah, a lot of us. If someone is a baby, and let's go to the human baby. If you go to the hospital or have a baby, and you bring the baby home, and you put the baby in the closet and only bring him out on Sunday mornings to show him off, how is that baby going to do? Not well. Is it any different with a baby Christian? When Jesus selected those to follow him, first of all, were they Christians? And the answer is no. Were they believers? Nope, they didn't know who he was. Did he say, come follow me? and then hang them on the wall or put them in a closet? Or did he say, come follow me, and immediately start to pour into them? Okay. I don't need to beat that one up too much, do I? Okay, so we, get, we find disciples, and we start demonstrating what Christianity is all about. Now, when Jesus first came onto the scene, what was his message? Do you remember? about the kingdom. John the Baptist was the first to announce the kingdom, and he said, repent, for the kingdom is at hand, or the kingdom is near, depending on the translation, correct? What was the first thing Jesus said? After he comes out of the temptation, out of the wilderness, goes into Galilee and starts preaching, the Bible tells us what his first message was. Do you remember what it was? It was the same thing John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What does repent mean? Turn away, turn away from sin. Anyone else? Change your mind. Okay. In the Greek, the word there is metanoia. From Greek, meta means to change, and noia means knowledge. Change your knowledge. So it's not a word that says turn away. It's not a sin term at all. It's a term that says, basically, Jesus is telling people, see the world the way I see it. Adopt my point of view. Does that make sense? We all good with that? Okay. So repent. The definition of repent, to change one's mind about some decided course, especially a harsh one, become more mild or amenable. To slacken or to become mild. To become less severe or intense, to relent. What's relent mean? To let go, to forgive. Relent and resolve 
in the Greek were, I don't know what the right way to put it, opposite words. To resolve is to harden your position. To relent was to soften your position. So if you are relenting of something, you are becoming more forgiving. Um, see, I missed a line here. Back to metanoia. To have a change of mind and heart. The word meant both. So it's not just changing your mind. It's not just knowledge. It's a heart position as well. It's becoming more forgiving, more compassionate, more lenient, more tolerant, more accepting of others. Does that make sense? So Jesus starts his ministry with this concept of repenting. So what he wants us to do is to become softer, milder, gentler in our acceptance of others as they learn to become more like him. Make sense? We good so far? Okay. And I sort of hit on this one already. Sorry, I got a little out of the order of my notes. But So Jesus comes on the scene. He preaches. He calls some of his disciples. And what's he do? What's he demonstrate? And it says right here, um, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. The power came out of him and he healed all of them. So this verse, this is starting on 17. This is immediately after Jesus prays all night, calls all those who wander with him, selects the 12 who are to become the apostles, and then he comes down and he demonstrates the power of the kingdom. What's apostle mean? Anyone have a clue what that word means? I'm sorry? Okay one who plants churches. Before Jesus came on the scene, what did apostle mean? Does anyone realize that was a position in the Roman government? Go, John. Ambassador. As everyone knows, Rome conquered most of the known world around the time of Christ. They, they were ruling it. When the Roman army would go in and conquer a territory, and it became Rome, part of Rome, Rome would send what they called apostles or ambassadors to the area they had just conquered for the purpose of making it Rome-like. Mm -hmm. They had authority and power. But what they were doing was they were assimilating the areas into the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire wanted their aristocracy or their traveling high class to be able to go throughout the Roman Empire and not have to worry about different laws and customs. So they wanted someone who had lived in Rome to be able to go into a new territory that had just been conquered and know how to work in that culture. Does that make sense? So what the apostle did was they brought the culture of Rome into the newly conquered territory. 
How does that apply to Christianity? Does it make sense that the apostles of Jesus were selected and educated purposely to bring the culture of the kingdom of heaven to the newly liberated places on earth? That makes sense? Again, most of the terms that Christianity uses came from words that were used before they were Christian, before the Christian world came, before Christ came. And what they did is they took the meaning of that world and applied it to a different kingdom, to a different war. That make sense? So apostles were created to change the environment such that the citizens of heaven knew how to deal in the culture. That makes sense? Is the ecclesia called to be apostles? I'm seeing some heads nod. Any doubt or question on that? Okay. Now, Jesus teaches us the truth, teaches us the kingdom of heaven, commissions the church, trains the apostles to go change the culture of the world and goes to the Father, right? Paul picks up, or the apostles pick up, and we have the epistles or the letters. Jesus tells us what the church is and what it should do. Paul is more telling us how to deal with it, what it should look like, what problems we have, what issues need to be dealt with, where things need to be set straight. What does Paul tell us then about discipling people or training people? What does he tell us about what it should look like? And I'm going to pick Romans 12 to start because everyone I think is familiar with Romans is probably the best place where Paul lays out his theology and his philosophy of the kingdom. But in Romans 12, starting with verse 1, he says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed by this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Hmm. Be do not conform to this world. What does it mean to conform to something? I'm sorry? To become. Are we to become conformed to the world or conformed to the kingdom of heaven? Okay. Are those two things opposing each other? Doesn't God very, very clearly say those who have the mindset on the world cannot be pleasing to God? Okay, so let's keep in mind those two are opposing each other. And you're right. Conform is to fashion oneself according to or to become like one. Matthew 22, <clears throat> after Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important one. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. 
all the law of the prophets depends on these two commands. So what are we being told here? Do we focus our mind on the world? Is that how we love the Lord? Or do we focus our mind on the Lord? Okay. Romans 6. For the mindset of the flesh is death. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace. What's that mean? Any clue? Where is, if your mind is set on something, where is your focus? Okay. What are the things of this world? Are the, I'm sorry, Maggie? Material things. How about circumstances that get stacked against us? Ever had one of those days where everything you try to do goes wrong? Okay. Ever had an appointment you had to get to and when you out, jumped in the car, put the key in the ignition and turned it, nothing happened? How do you react to that? If you're like me, you get pretty upset. Is that conforming to heaven or conforming to this world? Conforming to the world, right. God says don't worry about things, right? He's got us. Can everyone think of a time when circumstances of the world caused us to react in a way that did not really represent the Father's heart? And I know the answer. We've all got them. Okay. So when we have learned something, We've been educated in the system, and forgive me, I'm going to go a little, little off here. We all grew up in the planet Earth of the 21st, 20, 21st century. Some of us have been running around this planet longer than others. But who set into operation the systems and education and philosophies of this world? Wasn't that done by the ruler of this world years ago? And he was defeated at the cross, no question. But a lot of his philosophies and education system still exist. And since we have spent our life in this world, where do you think we've learned most of our outlook or worldview? World From the world. Is it fair for me to say that the teachings in the Bible usually are in conflict with the teachings of the world? Okay. If we have grown up in the world, don't we, let me back up a minute. How many here like stories? Pretty much everyone, right? We're wired to like stories. Some people deal more in facts, some people communicate more in stories, but we're all wired to like stories. <coughs> And out of what's going on in the world around us, we learn stories. And these stories become part of who we are because these narratives or these scripts are always running in the background of our mind. And whether we know it or not, we use these stories that run in the background of our mind to decide what's right or what's wrong. That make sense? Okay. 
So if we have learned these stories from the world, is it fair to say that sometimes what we come up with for a conclusion to a situation is not what Jesus would have come up with or not what the Father would have come up with? Okay. So we have an opposition, the Word of God and what we've learned in the, in the, on the planet, in the world. Everyone comfortable with that? If I were to suggest then that making disciples is very little more than helping people replace the narratives or the scripts they learned in the world with the narratives or the scripts of Jesus? Does that make sense? So how do we do that? First of all, if we have taken a, a narrative that runs in this world and we have accepted it in our mind as being the right way to do things, are we going to see when we're doing something that's not right? No. Fair to call those blind spots? Do we all have them? Fortunately, not everyone has the same blind spots. Is it possible that if you're with a group of Christians, people who are trying to follow Jesus, their blind spots might not be the same as your blind spots? And they might be able to see when you're running the wrong narrative and help you replace it with the right narrative? That makes sense? Isn't that what Paul's talking about when he says renewing of the mind? So, yeah, I think I got ahead of myself here. That's okay. One other comment I want to make. For most of my Christian life, I have been told that the flesh is inherently evil. Anyone heard that? I'm seeing some people shake their head. Anyone familiar with the book of John, the first chapter? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And around verse 6 or something, and it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Any idea what the word for flesh is in the first part of John? It's Greek word sarks. If the word became flesh and dwelt among us, is there evil in that flesh? Was there any, I mean, it is very specifically talking there of Jesus. Jesus is the word. The word became flesh. Was there any evil in Jesus? Okay. So the word sarks does not necessarily mean evil, does it? When you go to Romans 8, and it talks about, for those who live according to the flesh and those who live according to the spirit, do you realize the word flesh there is the same word used to describe Jesus in, first, in John? It's the word sarks. So I want to be very careful in making a point here. Just because we're human, just because we are sarks of flesh does not mean we must be evil. Okay? 
we have the ability to choose how we act to things. Now, the next statement might seem a little harsh, and I don't mean it to be, but I want you to really think on it. God, at all costs, appears to protect our free will, our ability to choose. We are defined by the choices that we make. Any question there? So who are we if we choose to act out of the heart of the enemy instead of act out of the heart of God? Whose son are we if we are acting from the wrong point of view of the wrong kingdom? Does that make us the son of the devil? But that's not necessarily because we have flesh. That's because of the choices we make. We choose at any point which kingdom to represent, which heart to bring to bear. That make sense? Does it also follow that the more we understand of the heart of God and the more we understand of, and I'm going to say the word narratives again, the scripts, that Jesus ran through his mind, the more we understand of those, is it possible that we will stand more for, for God and bring more of light into the dark world? I'm going to ask a question. I know the answer. Who here wants to represent darkness? <laughs> I caught one, but I know you don't mean it. <laughs> there is no one in here who wants to represent darkness. Paul says those who are practicing sin are the child of the enemy. Those who are practicing righteousness are the child of God. Everyone familiar with that? Just because you make a bad decision does not mean you're Satan's child. If you are sinning for the purpose of getting better at sinning, yeah. But if you make a mistake, no, you still got, you can still be God's child. But it's a matter of heart posture and what we choose. And I think what I'm, the point I'm really trying to make is let's learn as much about Jesus and the narratives he runs and the things he believes in and let's replace as many of those as possible on our own mind so that every situation we walk into, we can represent the heart of the Father. Everyone think that's a good goal? Okay, I, I don't have any opposition there, right? Okay. So, are we in a war? Any doubt? What are the sides? Good and evil. Kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. Okay. Now I'm going to put forth something here. Does the kingdom of light have a king? So it's truly a kingdom, right? Does the kingdom of darkness have a king? I see yes and I see no. Is Satan ever called a king by Jesus? He's called a prince, right? So I'm going to tell you it's not the kingdom of darkness. It's the princedom of darkness. That make sense? Did the king defeat the prince? So he's a defeated kingdom. Does he have any authority left? No. I hear yes. Didn't Jesus say 
all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. How much authority does that leave for anybody else? None, correct. So the prince of darkness, or referred to by Jesus as the ruler of this world, has no authority. Does he have power? And the answer is yes. Can he wield that power over us? I'm sorry? Bingo. If we let him. Everyone get that? All it takes to sin is to believe a lie of the enemy and to act upon it. Does that make sense? I'm not going to ask how many of us have done that because I know the answer. That one's pretty clear. So we're in a war. Who are the combatants in the war? Okay. <laughs> I like that. I'm sorry? A team versus B team. Angels, demons. Are the B team or the other guys ever our enemy? Be careful. Turn yes. What does Paul say? Right. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So who are we always warring against? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry? I want to be careful. We are not warring against unsaved people. We are not warring against... What we're warring against are the narratives that people have learned in the world that they're running in their mind, causing them to make decisions that represent darkness instead of light. That's why Paul says the constant renewing of your mind. Now, is the Holy Spirit in a person an issue? that we fight with? And the answer is no. And I, will pu I pull that out of, let's start with Joel, Joel 2.28. I know it's Old Testament, but God says, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. On how, how much of humanity? Okay. Then your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. Do you know that that almost word for word is found in the New Testament? If you go to Acts 2, 17. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Sound like the same thing? God will pour out his spirit on all humanity. So are there any exceptions on humanity who God has poured the Spirit out on? 
if the Spirit is poured out on us, we get to choose whether we come into agreement with the Spirit or we, whether we come into agreement with the narratives we've learned in the world. But the person is not the enemy and the lack of the Spirit is not a problem. It's still the mind. Um, so again, the combatants are the evil forces in heavenly places, correct? Those things that have put in place to ensnare or entrap the mind of a man or a woman. I'm not, I'm not gender specific, but does that make sense? Jesus came to set us free from that stuff, right? Okay. I'm sorry, I digress a bit. So what is the victory? If our war is against the spirits, the evil spirits, how do we know when we've had victory? Will it be when we see somebody else writing the right narratives or the right scripts or someone else who used to think one way which was conformed to the world now thinks this way because they're transformed by the spirit? Is that the victory? Everyone go along with that? Okay. I think I've hit everything I want to Oop, there. And that's pretty much the setup. So what's the message? Question. Was Jesus in a small group? <laughs> okay. Part of a large group. So sometimes. I'm sorry? Sometimes it was just him and God, yes. Yep, the apostles are a small group. If we look in the Bible, we see that Jesus was a member of a number of different groups. One is the group of all humanity, or all who came in contact with him, all who saw him, saw what he did, got to feel the radiance of light and love that came from him. Then we see, at some point, didn't he call and commission the 72 to go out? So he had a group of 72, some translations seven, some 70, some translations 72. That one kind of baffles me. Um, not that it's a large group like that, but why some say one number and one say another. How about the 12? Okay. Within that group of 12, did he have another inner circle of those that were closer? The three, right? Okay. How much of Jesus' time was spent dealing with the 12 or the 3 versus dealing with the crowd? Anyone got a clue? Pardon? One book of the Bible, and I read this, and forgive me, I don't remember it was Matthew or Mark. I think it is Mark. Now I can go back and check if anyone wants to know. But one of the books was very good about telling what settings Jesus was ministering in. And when you count the verses that talk about his ministry, it comes 50-50. Or actually, it's 49-51, so pretty close to 50-50. Half his time spent with the 12 and the crowd, and 50% of his time focused just on the 12. It's actually 17. Within that 50%, 17% of the verses focused just on the three. But I think it's fair to say he spent about 50-50 with his small group 
and then with the world in general. Um, what was Jesus' purpose in discipling his small group? Okay, explaining the parables. If I were to say that what Jesus was doing was renewing their mind, teaching them how to see the world from his point of view, does everyone think that's a fair statement? Okay. Now, looking at the 12, did they have blind spots? Other times, they just seem like they're never going to get it. Okay. How many take solace to feel better when they read the account of the 12? <laughs> Good. I'm not in bad company because I do too. I, I read some of the accounts of the 12, and I think if there could have been 12 stooges instead of three, that group could have been it. <laughs> Forgive me, Dad. Um, Yet, through renewing their mind, Jesus changed the planet, didn't he? He's arguably, in anyone's point of view, the most influential person that ever lived. For those who don't believe that he is the Son of God, he is still credited with being the one who has changed the culture more than anybody else. No one else has caused a calendar split, a new age to begin. Make sense? Now, we know he is the Son of God. We know why he came. But everyone acknowledges that he is the most influential person that ever existed. Simply by transforming the minds of the 12 around him and then sending them to do the same thing, right? Now, we know the 12 had blind spots. Do we have blind spots? Okay, enough said. Question, did Jesus make disciples? Was Jesus a disciple? Remember, what's, I'm getting, what's the definition of a disciple? Isn't it someone who believes in the teachings of another and assists in spreading that teaching? Was, is it fair to say Jesus in his earthly form was a disciple of his father? Okay, so I'm not going to get any more resistance there, right? Is it possible to be a disciple in the manner of Jesus without discipling others? Now, I know that that one's a little iffy. Some will say yes, some can say no. But my point is, Jesus grew during his years of discipling and mentoring the people he was with. And the Bible does state that because of he grew during his suffering, and his suffering brought him more to perfection. I didn't dig out that verse exactly, but I know that's in there. How many people here are parents? Did you grow through raising your children? <laughs> yeah. I know that's a mixed bag, too. My mother had five teenagers at once, so I know where her gray hair came from. Because I was one of them. 
But I also know from raising my children, a lot of the things that I thought I knew, I really didn't until I tried to instill them in somebody else. And when you explain something to somebody else and they don't get it, and then you try to demonstrate someone to somebody else and it doesn't have the effect you want, do you have to go back and revisit how you see it and how it's supposed to work so you can properly demonstrate it and teach it? Is that part of the process of being a disciple? And I think the answer is yes. I think if we are truly going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to be discipling somebody else. Question. When Jesus called his disciples, were they already saved? Were they part of the ecclesia? Did they believe Jesus was the Son of God? Did they know any of that stuff? So Jesus called them and made disciples out of them, started pouring in, started helping them transform their minds, started teaching them to see things the way God sees them and what the kingdom of light is like. Isn't what the great, that's what the Great Commission tells us to be? Are we challenged to go make disciples? Okay. Let's look at it another way. And we've already hit on this, so bear with me. Concept of choices and free will. We touched on that a little while ago. I got off on a tangent, but I'm going back to it now. Does God protect the free will in everyone? Yes. At any point, even on the deathbed, someone can come to God and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior and be saved, correct? No matter what they've done in the past. Okay. How about someone who from the time they were from the time they were saved always really tried to represent the heart of the Father? Is anyone more saved, and is the first one more saved than the second one or vice versa? And you can go to the parable of the laborers in the vineyard and see how God works that out or how, what he teaches us there. So, back to the way we respond any doubt that the Holy Spirit dwells in us and on us everyone good with that see if I can draw this illustration anyone seen the experiment where they put a balloon in a pressure chamber and start building the pressure and the balloon shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks as the pressure builds. Everyone's seen that? If you put a balloon, blow up a balloon, tie it off, and put it in a, in a chamber in which you can increase the air pressure, as you pump more air into that chamber, what happens to the balloon? The pressure on the outside forces it on the balloon. And when the pressure on the outside of the balloon becomes more, the balloon contracts to where the pressure on the inside of the balloon is the same as that on the outside. That makes sense? You follow what Donna makes sense to you? So the more pressure you put in, the smaller the balloon comes. 
What happens when you pull pressure out of the chamber? Pardon? Yeah, the balloon gets big. Now, when the pressure was where it was when you started, the balloon's its original size. What happens if you suck all the air out of the chamber? Boom and pop. The balloon will expand until it, A, fills the container, or ruptures the rubber membrane and the balloon just blows up if the chamber's big enough. Make sense? So envision us being the container and the Holy Spirit in us being the pressure build the pressure within ourselves. And the circumstances of the world being the pressure on the outside of the balloon. As the pressure from the circumstances of the world build, what happens to the spirit within us? Or what can happen? It can shrink. Ever seen someone who professes and sincerely means it to represent the heart of the Father and things start going wrong and the next thing that comes out of it is something you just don't believe? Ever been that person? Yeah. So is it possible in the world to have the pressure on the outside exceed the spirit on the inside? Yeah, we've all been there. Did Jesus ever get there? Why? Well, we can play the God card and say he could, could be God. Pardon? Yes. Yeah. If we, Mike, if we believe, and we need to know that Jesus was a son of God, but when he became flesh and dwelt among us, he set aside the deity. Jesus lived by the same Holy Spirit that we have access to. And if we don't accept that and believe that, then we don't really believe that we can do everything Jesus could do. But yet Jesus says, you will do everything and greater things will you do. So through the Spirit, we have access to every choice, every action, every demonstration that Jesus did, we have access to through the Spirit. Um, so if Jesus was able to withstand the entire, everything that the enemy could throw against him in the world, could, could we theoretically do it? The answer is yes. How do we do it? And we do it through communion, continual communing with God, continual praying, continual relying on the Spirit. Isn't that how Jesus did it? Okay. Um, so, <clears throat> what is our state? I don't mean Virginia. As a collection of individuals that make up the ecclesia, what is our state? Do we within us still have some of the narratives of the enemy running and do we still make choices based on lies of the enemy? Thinking they're good, but not clearly representing the power of the Father. Yeah. How many of you have witnessed that in another Christian? How many other Christians have witnessed that in us? Okay. 
I guess that finishes the setup. Um, so, within this church, we have small groups. What's the purpose of our small groups? Bingo. <laughs> Actually, she hasn't heard it the way you did. <laughs> In his one, we, you could have said Jesus. It would have been the right answer. But discipleship. Our small group system is going to change. I think people have heard that rumor. Jeff's announced it a few times. And Jeff and I are still flushing it out. We're looking for places that seem to have a flavor that we like, and we have found one that we really like. In this system of groups, or in this system, there are two things that are really, really, really important in a small group. First of all is the amount of time spent in prayer over the group by its leader and its members. The material doesn't matter. The preparation time doesn't matter much. The topic or whatever the group wants to get together over doesn't matter. What matters, A, is the prayer, and B, helping each other see, and you cannot do this in a vacuum, helping each other see where we are, where we have the symptoms of representing darkness rather than light. Remember, we cannot judge the human heart. That's God's job. All we can do is observe the behavior. And if we see behavior that we don't believe is representative of the kingdom of heaven, do we have a responsibility to bring that to the attention of the person? Do we have the responsibility to make them conform to what we just said? Good, no. Whose job is it to change the human heart? Pardon? The Holy Spirit. Whose job is it to help people renewing the mind? Do I hear ours? And through renewing of the mind, will that regenerate the heart? So, that last 35 seconds was the whole, or that last minute was the whole message. We are a church that believes in small groups. We are a church that believes that the purpose of the small groups should be to call each other up. Note, I'm not saying call each other out. Call each other up. So the purpose of small group will be people to get together and share life. And I don't care. It can be someone who thinks that um, beef is the best thing in the world, and what they're going to do is get together and grill beef and eat it. Could be wine tasting. It can be knitting. It can be coffee drinking. It can be motorcycle riding, and I'll sign up for that one. Anybody think of something, some other activity they're passionate about and would like to do with other people in the context of using that group to help other people become more Christ-like? Hiking. Good. God created nature. He put that scenery out there for us just to fall in love with and to show us his glory. That's a good one. Dancing. Yes. Pardon? Yes. Yes, we can still, we can still do Bible studies. I mean, 
if we are not using the scripture as the basis for other people or helping us and other people renew their mind, we're wasting our time. It's got to be based in the Bible. But yes, there are, I, I cannot right now, well, I'm not going to make that statement. I'll make it this way. There are probably very few things that people would bring to Jeff or I as an idea of a group that we would not think could be used for helping people transform to become more Christ-like. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, if it's, um, if target practice on humans is what you want to do, yeah, that one we would turn down. Um, if someone said emptying bourbon bottles for the purpose of just getting drunk was what they wanted to do in the group, yes, that one we would turn down. But I wouldn't turn down wine tasting. Okay, and you can. That is correct. I mean, that's the basis. That is correct. But is there also a scripture that says it's okay to drink? Yeah. See, Maggie, it's a balance. If there is someone who wants to do wine tasting and they pray who should be in that, would God give them the name of someone who has a problem with alcohol? Bingo, but would God give it to him? Well, yeah. yeah, and I hear what you're saying. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. But if we're using the Bible as a rule book, what does it rule out? Yes, you do need to be careful of causing people to stumble. You do need to be careful of people who are not as grown in faith as you are. But does it not also say that for those who believe, Nothing is wrong like that. It does say do not get drunk and allow it to cause you to sin. So what it's saying is you are accountable for representing the kingdom even if you've had a glass of wine. And yeah, to Maggie's point, you're right. If it causes someone to stumble, sure, that shouldn't be there. But as a group of believers, does that mean we are limited as long as we are not in the presence of those who would cause to stumble. And is it a double standard? And the Bible clearly says no. Okay. Anything else on that? Yes. You can absolutely get drunk for the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Now, that has become my favorite. I will say um, when I was in the Navy, that was not quite the same. But, okay, I think I've gone over time here by more than I intended to. Um, I'm sorry? Yeah, I saw that. I, you know, I'm not, I've got this thing back here. I'm not paying attention to it because I'm, I'm lost in the ozone as I do. I thought this message was going to take five minutes. I was worried it was going to be too short. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just ask that these words that have spoken that are of you take seed and grow. And that you will root out that which is not of you and bring us to the fruition of the fullness of your son. And we all come to you sincerely wishing to be that agent that apostle, that person that can bring 
the environment of heaven to earth. So, Father, I just ask you to bless each one of us here today. And as we go, put people in our path. Bring people to mind that we can, from where we are and what we have, share your light, share your love, and share your wisdom. And bring people in connection with you. And, Father, you will take it from there. Let us be your representatives, your ambassadors, and your light in this dark world. And let nothing of the enemy deter us from our mission. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.